Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and formerly the Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy Podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges of the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on how to create a blue boost to help reverse our stalling recovery in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, we begin the first of a three-part sub-series I'm hosting on leading women wave makers in the American Blue Economy. And I borrow from the name of the Wave Makers podcast by ASPN host Tamara Khan. Uh, and she, you definitely have to check out her wonderful show on ASPN, please. And much like this last sub-series I had about how the military supports the blue economy, uh, this one I want to look at women and how women are making truly notable contributions to both blue tech and the blue economy. And in this little three-part sub-series, I'll bring back a few previous guests and I'll also bring in a few new ones. So really excited about this. Uh, But before we begin, I'd like to ask our listeners to be aware uh, that our media team at Coastal News today is looking for sponsors. And if you are interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. All right. So here I get to begin by introducing our wonderful guests. Uh, First off, the CEO and founder of the Virgil Group, Celeste LaRue, a former NOAA shipmate of mine. Celeste, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And we also have the Government Solutions Lead at So Far Ocean, Tosca Lichtenheld. Tosca, great to have you aboard today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. And also... Patty Gross is the dive safety officer at the nonprofit Force Blue. Patty, so good to have you today. Thank you. It's really an honor to be here, and I'm looking forward to the podcast. Very cool. Well, Patty, I want to start with you because you inspired me to have this show for two different reasons. One is I wanted to, you to join a previous show which you couldn't make, and uh, it was it was profiling your nonprofit Force Blue, which. Uh, performs a conservation, ocean conservation mission, but also a veterans support mission, which I just love. And that was a great show, but I I didn't want to exclude you because of uh, your contributions. And, you know, we talked in previous episodes of this show about how conservation is so important to the blue economy and your nonprofit does so much good in that world. And you just got off the boat today. So (laughs) tell us about what you were doing today and how that factors into your uh, Force Blues mission. Yes, I did. Um, we have we are actually right now in the Florida Keys conducting a team training. A team training means that we're bringing on six new special operations veterans, and our goal is to get one representative of each branch of service that were trained as uh, not only special operations, but Uh, underwater like Navy SEALs. And so they've gone through the extreme training of underwater work. And so today we have six new people. Um, We were working with a nonprofit in the Florida Keys called iCare, which is uh, a nonprofit that works with Moat. And we were learning about corals, coral identification, coral disease, And then we went out and we transplanted nursery-raised corals back onto the reef. I actually jumped off the boat and got a shuttle ride back to the dock so that I could participate. And I'm guessing that the guys are wrapping up right now. That is such great work. It's good that you're suntanned and salty. I mean, no better better (laughs) way to be for this this podcast. And uh, interesting for our listeners... I had uh, iCare, um, a representative from iCare joined our podcast on coral and coral reefs 
uh, a few months ago. So be sure to check that one out. Really good work they're doing. And, uh, and wonderful, Patty. Uh, I have so many questions for you about your work and how you got into it, but we'll kind of just kind of go through all the guests right now to make sure we get have an overview. So let me go to Tosca Lichtenheld, the uh, government solutions lead at So Far Ocean. So Tosca, tell us about So Far Ocean, and they're new to this this series, and I, uh, the whole idea of ocean intelligence, I think, is just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So So Far Ocean is an ocean tech startup based out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the idea of So Far Ocean is, just like you said, bringing ocean intelligence and making it scalable and affordable. So the way that we do that is we built a very low cost, easily deployable smart buoy um, called a spotter. Um, and it's really cute. It looks like a little minion if you've seen um, <laughs> those movies. Uh, yes, but yes. It's about the size of a basketball. And that was the start of the company, just creating a very low cost buoy that was much less expensive than the sophisticated instruments that typically cost five to 10 times as much. Then we went about deploying a global network of these buoys. We've got hundreds of them out in the open ocean. They are free drifting. And we have an ocean science team that takes that data from the global network to create a global wave and weather forecast. And um, as I'm sure you're all aware, all of your listeners are aware, wind and weather and waves are just so important for every industry in the blue economy. And so having in-situ data informing those forecasts and being able to have higher resolution, more accurate forecasts is absolutely critical. And we also have a product called Wayfinder, which is a software platform that incorporates the uh, forecast data from our ocean science team and uses it to optimize shipping routes, which improves safety for those uh, vessels, but it also reduces fuel consumption, which in turn reduces carbon emissions, which is better for our planet. And that's really what so far, Ocean's uh, mission is about it's ocean intelligence for a more sustainable planet. I love it. I love your company. It's really a pleasure to be a strategic advisor for you all. And so many of the topics we've covered in the Blue Economy podcast have uh, involved an application or need for ocean data. I mean, just coral reefs and forest blue, for example, is so so critical to monitor ocean conditions to predict the health uh, of reefs whether it be from warming or even uh, acidification. And I know that's a huge part of NOAA's mission. And um, can you name off the, uh, just uh, off the cuff, are there any coral reef reef areas that you're supporting? I think there are. Yeah, so we actually partner with um, a nonprofit called Aqualink. And we um, provide uh, our, our buoys as well as what we call smart mooring to monitor the temperature at a variety of reefs around the world. And you can actually, if you Google Aqualink, you can see a map of where we're um, collecting that data and you can actually click and see um, what the temperatures are. Very cool. Um, now I'd like to go to Celeste LaRue, co-founder of the Virgil Group, who uh, is, it's, uh, you're uh, basically a seafood analytics company, which I think is a very interesting take or, or application in this broader ocean intelligence area. Uh, so please, tell us about your company and what you're doing and hope to achieve. Sure, happy to. So Virgil Group is a company that I started recently, about two years ago, and we really are trying to make sure that companies have every tool available to them to comply with the very intricate and constantly changing regulations governing seafood trade and traceability. Uh, we have, we're working on two different software products. One is called Seafood Check, and that takes data that is required by imports uh, to the European Union, the United Kingdom, the United States, and checks all of that data that asks where a fish came from, what vessel harvested it, what type of fishing gear they were using, the species, et cetera, and runs that against a wide array of government-issued data sets from around the world that we've pulled together and can give customers an instant gut check as to whether or not that bluefin tuna really should have come from Senegal or could that cod have actually come from Chile? No, it could not. Uh, so we wanted to give people that gut check about traceability data because just tracing information doesn't make it true. You have to put accurate information into the system. 
the other product that we're working on is called Boathouse. We realized that a lot of the digitization process for traceability is very, very challenging, especially if you are stuck entering the data for trade and have no familiarity with fishing, fish, seafood at all. And we wanted to create as error-proof an interface as possible for people to submit their data into traceability systems to reduce the amount of errors that we were seeing in trade. So interesting and super relevant. I had just written an article on illegal fishing related to seafood trade and sustainable seafood today in The Hill. Uh, for our audience, you can look up the uh, I illegal fishing and space innovation, and you might find the article published yesterday on the 15th of June, but uh, Seafood Check and Boathouse, those are your two uh, programs. And, and, and tell me, so this is just a broad topic and I can't, it's like, I don't know where to begin next, but let's go back to where your background, if you don't mind, Celeste, first. You were at NOAA in the Seafood Import and Monitoring Program, isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. I spent about 11 years total at NOAA, between NOAA and the White House Council on Environmental Quality. The last six years of that were really spent working for different aspects of the U.S. government, trying to make sure that the U.S. was no longer a market for illegally harvested seafood. Now, as you know, Admiral Gallaudet, a very, very large portion of the seafood that we consume in this country was imported. And unfortunately, there's a lot of studies that show that there's quite a bit of fraud, illegal seafood in trade, and that illegal fishing really undermines the sustainability of our ocean resources, the marketability of legally caught seafood, because it's very hard to compete with somebody who didn't pay for permits, didn't pay their taxes. Um, so I started that journey at NOAA and then at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, developing and overseeing this work of a presidential task force in the Obama administration on combating illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing and seafood fraud. One of the main recommendations out of that task force was that the U.S. develop a regulatory program that would require specific data on the harvest and the landing of seafood that was coming into the United States for species that the U.S. had determined were at higher risk of having been illegally harvested or mislabeled in some way. Um, I had a very unique, extraordinary opportunity, really, to work on that at the White House task force level, then work on it at NOAA to write to draft the regulation called the U.S. Seafood Import Monitoring Program, and then to lead the implementation of the program for the regulation that I had wrote and for the task force that I had worked on. Uh, so it was very, very cool to watch something like that flesh out in real time. And it offered me a very unique perspective into how traceability data is and can be used to actually target and track and combat the imports of illegally harvested seafood. So that's the background that I came into when I decided that the real opportunity here was to create a solution to assess all of this data that would be made available to both governments and to the industry that the governments are trying to regulate. Because if the government just gets good at tracking illegal seafood and punishing industry, but industry has no way to monitor this themselves, we really haven't solved the problem. The goal here is to keep illegally harvested seafood out of trade. And to do that, you need to empower companies to be able to monitor their own supply chains. Absolutely. And, and so well done for you. In fact, Celeste, it's a neat thing. You were at the White House right before I came in. And we still continue to detail uh, NOAA employees to the White House, different White House offices. And that's still happening today. And I've actually interacted with three or four of them in the last month. But, um, but what you laid the groundwork for, we ultimately carried, I guess, over the goal line when um, the president signed an executive order in 2020 on, uh, on seafood. And, um, and it included, I think, provisions for seafood import monitoring, uh, advancing aquaculture, combating illegal fishing, and a few other things, all of which you were helping basically build a case for uh, when you were at the White House before me. 
so, so well done. And this whole area is so critical for the blue economy, for the American blue economy, especially because as you said, Celeste, we import such a large portion of our seafood and, and we want that to be sustainable and therefore not illegally caught or, uh, or, or involve human trafficking or any, any other aspect of, of harmful practices to put, put seafood into the system. Um, thank you. Really interesting. I can't wait to go back for it. I love the idea that you're just using analytics. So we kind of have a neat range of, of guests here. We have this high level uh, um, analytic capability of Celeste, but we also have the sort of um, hardware and software that Tosca's uh, so far ocean. But then, then we also have getting in the water, salty and suntanned, as I mentioned, Patty Gross, uh, just today with Forest Blue replanting coral. And so going back to you, Patty, uh, I'd like to maybe ask you about your background. I haven't, I don't even know this, so it'll be a, a nice education for me. When did you start diving and what brought you to Forest Blue? So I'll, it's been a lot of years since I've been diving, so I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, I grew up in the middle of the country in Nebraska and always wanted to be a marine scientist because I always loved the water. Um, however, University of Nebraska has the agricultural campus and they're not really teaching marine biology. So I went on to a real job. I became an administrative law judge for the state of Nevada after I graduated and decided that sitting in a room really wasn't what I wanted to do. And once I learned that I could scuba dive and actually get paid for it, well, I kind of took a leave of absence, which ended up being a new career for me. And I traveled about the world and diving as many places as I could. It was long enough ago that a female instructor traveling around the globe was kind of an anomaly. So I could just show up someplace and I could get a job. I landed in the core in the, sorry, I landed in the Florida Keys in about 2005, and I got introduced to Ken Niedermeyer, who was the one that started Coral Restoration Foundation. And at the time I met him, it was really just a backyard science program. And we had a lot of fun experimenting with how to grow corals and how to how to grow them more quickly and what kind of structures. And it grew into a very successful uh, model, the coral tree that grows the corals very quickly. How I became introduced to Force Blue was strictly, as Jim Ritteroff would say, serendipitous. Um, I went to the Cayman Islands with Ken and they, we had a contract with them and we installed coral nurseries all around Grand Cayman. One of the places was the Sunset House and I was left alone to install this two nurseries at the Sunset House. Ken, and his, Ken had already left and Keith Song, who's one of the co-founders of the Sunset House, called me back a couple of years after I had installed these nurseries and said, oh, we've got this new nonprofit and they're veterans. And he went through kind of the cliff nose version. My brain clicked and I went, oh, free trip to Cayman. Yeah, I'll oh. go. <laughs> yes. And I had no idea, absolutely no idea what I was getting into. Um, but it was such this was a week-long project i got up every morning and did pt with them we ran we did all of these things they have it set up as very structured because these are newly retired veterans that are seeking missions and seeking structure and that's the way our days and nights were for seven days and it was very it was life-changing for me i think um, oh. These guys have sacrificed so much of their lives for our country and our safety. And I saw this shift in them. Now, we did more than corals their whole week, but I was kind of like 
the last of everything that they have been trained to, they were being trained to do. I watched this shift and then they went from protecting people and villages that they were trained to do to actually protecting the corals. I didn't have to tell them that they were delicate animals and you had to treat them gently and don't crush them. And they were, they were like, they were picking up babies. It was absolutely, I was in awe and they are so mission driven that they caught on quickly. They planted the corals and I just fell in love with the whole concept. And it was actually, I was just kind of one of those volunteers that never went away, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're lucky to keep you. Yeah. So, I mean, I transitioned from that to, I had experience as being a scientific diver with Coral Restoration Foundation. I had written their dive safety manual. And when I was asked if I could help them, get credibility is really what we needed. Um, yeah. You know, they look at, some people look at the special ops or any military people and, you know, they tease themselves by saying they're Neanderthals or knuckle draggers or all of this when they're really great individuals, but we needed credibility. So I wrote first a manual and, and got us reciprocity with Noah down here in the Florida Keys because they're huge with our sanctuary projects. And uh, then two years ago, uh, wrote the manual that allowed us to become operating members with uh, American Association of Underwater Scientists, AAUS. So I do all of the scientific training with them. And so we're gonna be out there laying transects and doing all kinds of crazy stuff that scientists do. God, crazy, crazy good. And that's just great to hear, Patty. I I didn't know the whole story and it's, wow, they were so lucky to find you. And for anyone in our audience who hadn't heard the previous episode where I interviewed the founder of Force Blue, Jim Ritterhoff, and some of his teammates, we go into the mission of how it's both restoring um, the health of the oceans as well as the health of veterans, originally special forces veterans, but now Force Blue is branching out. And and that uh, a transformative effect, positive, uh, that the ocean and the beauty of the ocean and all that it has and the, and the mission to protect it has had on these veterans who have seen some really horrific experiences. And I, and so I, that joy is wonderful that, that you foster and, and keep safe, uh, Patty. So that's just wonderful. And I, I'd like to go to Tosca now with So Far Ocean because one of the things that I just love about the company is, and actually all of our guests, is we all have this mutual interest and passion for the oceans, for ocean health, and for ocean understanding. And so um, y- your company has a wide range of, of applications. You have uh, the coral reefs that you mentioned with Aqualink. You have the shipping industry to reduce emissions and, and improve safety. Um, what other I guess, customers or, or partners do you have, whether it be in academia? I know you do a ton of research. What, what, what might you want to share, Tosca, along the lines of helping people better understand, predict, predict, and sustainably use the ocean? Yeah, that's such a great question, Tim. And I think it really comes back to um, the the title of your podcast, the American Blue Economy, and, and really the new blue economy, which I see as being information driven. Um, and we're a provider of that information that can provide assistance to a variety of sectors, as you mentioned. So we have Um, academic researchers who are using our buoys or our data um, in projects ranging from studying ice um, up in the Arctic to um, better understanding currents in certain parts of the world. Um, There's aquaculture, there's the shipping industry, as you mentioned. Um, There's also the world of national security and defense, which is uh, a personal passion of mine. Um, That's my background and my career. Um, But there's also um, offshore energy and offshore wind in particular is starting to take off. Um, If For folks who've been following that, um, there were a bunch of really big lease auctions for um, territories to install the first offshore wind uh, 
turbines off the east coast of the United States. But there's a lot of consideration that goes into that, whether it's um, the construction and the safety of what the ocean will look like during that construction, but then also the environmental factors. How can we make sure that we're doing that in a sustainable way, monitoring the marine life and making sure that we're not disturbing marine mammals? Um, so there's just so much <laughs> that ocean data can can influence and, and can help us uh, both drive the blue economy while also protecting the ocean that we love. Right. And I, that's why I'm having so much fun with you and your company because of this, this diverse set of applications. And like I talk about in this podcast and have covered just a range of all these wonderful ocean applications. Um, like that you have a really incredible team of scientists, your CEO, Tim Jansen, Dr. Tim, he uh, and I, you know, we come from the same, I guess, kind of background, like physical oceanographers. And, and so it's uh, it's really neat to see your team um, take this really important mission, embrace it, and but also move so fast. Uh, we have covered NOAA observing systems in previous episodes, and they're great programs, but they, they're not as agile in incorporating new data and, and, and um, architectures. Like, for example, tell us about Bristlemouth and your work with DARPA. I think that innovation is brilliant, and it's a, a great example of this ocean intelligence kind of idea we talk about. Yes, absolutely. So um, the idea of Bristlemouth is really about um, open sourcing ocean exploration. And what I mean by that is Bristlemouth is, if you look at it, it just looks like a, a hardware connector, which is what, is it, what it is. It's a hardware connector. It also is a power standard and um, it allows data to be transmitted, but it's specifically designed for the marine environment and designed to survive up to full ocean depth. Um, and we like to call it the USB of the sea. And what makes that powerful is um, right now, one of the challenges about gathering data about the, uh, about the ocean is um, a lot of times sensors do exist, but it's difficult to encase them in a way that works in the marine environment or that can be tailored to the depth, the pressure, um, the salinity of an ocean environment. So by having a universal connector and being able to just plug and play different types of sensors, it opens up a whole new capability for ocean exploration, whether it's academics, whether it's NOAA itself, or whether it's a citizen scientist who wants to you know, plug in an underwater camera and learn more about the environment around them. So we partnered with DARPA to work on Bristlemouth and it's still under development, um, but it's something that I'm absolutely thrilled about because it will enable our spotter buoy to act as the communications via satellite and the um, power via solar power platform for universally any, any sensor. So um, with that Bristlemouth connector, you can plug in anything from a pH sensor to um, a hydrophone, and it'll just open up this this entire new world of ocean exploration, which I'm very excited about. Me too. That's really neat. I have to ask, who came up with the name? That is an excellent idea that I am not entirely sure of the answer to. But um, <laughs> for those who don't know what Bristlemouth means or what the name comes from, it's the most common um type of fish out in the ocean. And so the idea is we want sensors to be as ubiquitous as uh, the bristlemouth species. Oh, I thought it came from having like just these multiple types of con data connectors and the, the appearance would be like a bristlemouth, but okay, okay. <laughs> Anyways, I, fantastic. Really neat things. Love that. The Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, is partnering with an ocean startup. That's just great. Um, but I, I'd like to go to Celeste right now because, so as, as Tosca talked about ocean data and intelligence and all these applications, one of the things that you and I are, are kind of embarking upon possibly is to help um, capacity building for fisheries managers in underdeveloped countries. And I'm, we're looking a lot at the Pacific Island countries, but also others. And this is with another company I work with, Linker. But you, this is the point of Boathouse. Isn't, isn't, you want to support these artisanal fishers in countries like this. Is, is that correct? 
Yes, that's exactly right. So what we saw is uh, traceability has become a barrier to trade in some instances. If you are a small scale artisanal fishery, you may absolutely have sustainable seafood, legal seafood, but the technological hurdle of being able to record your data in such a way that you're an international buyer is going to trust what you have and believe that it was legally harvested can be its own burden. So I'm extremely grateful to have partnered with uh, Consensus is the name of the company, uh, with their founder, Ryan Taylor, who got his start in traceability for mining uh, artisanal scale gold in Africa and South America and, and came across exactly the same issues where we really need better first mile traceability data going into these systems in order to remove that initial barrier and level the playing field for some of these small scale fisheries. Um, what I'm hoping that Boathouse will be able to do is provide that very, very simple interface for folks to be able to enter information into a system, and then something like Seafood Check can make sure that the information they entered makes sense. And we can pass that along to a buyer and they can have every assurance that the product is just as worthy of their business as something that came from a more sophisticated fishery. Excellent, really interesting. Well, I, I do hope we can, um, we can embark on this, scale it up. There's a lot of need out there. Uh, yeah, I now, look forward to doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't told you, but I actually got feedback originally from fisheries uh, administrators in Colombia and Cambodia. So more to follow. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here because one of the, you know, this is a, the American Blue Economy podcast, but this little series I wanted to profile and showcase you three as women wave makers in the blue economy. And I want to keep with you, Celeste, and ask you about how you know your your beginning as a CEO of this tech startup in the blue economy. And I, I just am curious how that's been for you. Um, what what is uh, I just, what's been your experience? Has it been different because you're a woman, or for better or for worse? Um, what what would you like to share with us? So that's a very interesting question. Thanks for asking it. My experience as a founder is colored in two ways. One is as a female founder, and the other is as someone who's come out of a career in government. Both of those are pretty unusual in the tech startup space. I've also started this company during the pandemic. We started in April of 2020. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I, I had made plans to do this before that happened, uh, which means that a lot of my engagement with other founders has been virtual, but aided greatly by a couple of accelerator programs that we've gone through. And, and I want to shout them out because of all the great work they do. There's the Ocean Startup Project, Washington Maritime Blue Accelerator, the Ocean Exchange, and the Creative Destruction Lab. All of those have been tremendous in terms of giving us amazing mentors and guidance teaching me about the venture capital world. And I can say that in that time, I've learned for sure that uh, I stand out as a minority in this space, not necessarily as a bad thing. Um, but I do know that if our company starts moving in the direction of raising venture capital, that's going to probably be more of a hurdle. I know that women receive a tiny, tiny fraction of VC funding. And that is an area where there needs to be more of a push for equal treatment. Um, I hope that it won't hinder me as we move in that direction. I will say that, you know, being a female founder, some of the advice you get might sort of lean towards ask, acting more in the archetypical founder stance, which I think most people would agree is a pretty masculine uh, look and feel. And you have to sort of reconcile with yourself. Am I being true to who I really am? Or am I putting on the suit of a character, caricature of an entrepreneur and trying to act like somebody else? And there is a gender role issue with that. I 
I think that I've found a good balance, but it requires a lot of introspection. And part of what I try to do to help the broader community of women coming up in this space is offer internships. So I like to take uh, students, men and women, who are interested in entering this environmental policy, environmental uh, software design space, and teach them about some of the lessons that I had to learn on the job and help them into the earlier stages of their careers, having overcome some of the obstacles that faced me sort of through work, because it's a lot harder to work through your own roadblocks on on the company dime. And uh, I'm glad to be able to offer that opportunity for women to sort of learn about their space and working in a women-led company in a in a relatively non-threatening, you know, easy environment for students uh, so that they can feel more comfortable working with women leaders and being women leaders in the future. Oh, that is so good of you, Celeste. That's just wonderful to hear. And thank you for such an honest and insightful answer. Uh, very interesting. And I did not know that about the, the VC world. Uh, that's important. And if anybody listening can do anything about that, I encourage you to do it uh, because you have a great uh, story and, and, and product offering, uh, Celeste, and I want to see it continue and expand. Uh, on this topic, by the way, um, I shared before that I have three daughters, so uh, empowering women to have a fair uh, playing field in the American blue economy matters a great deal to me. And I, I'm also inspired by my wife, who was a Navy salvage diver, Karen, and I've talked about her a bit on the show, but I'm really impressed with you, Patty, because, you know, especially diving was, has been a historically male-dominated field for such a long time. And Karen witnessed that firsthand in the Navy, uh, mostly not through the diving community, but through the uh, uh, senior officers on her salvage ship. A great deal of discrimination. It caused her to leave the Navy uh, really, the Navy's lost. She would have been a great, better admiral than me, um, and she remains so in our household. But I, would you share with us any of your experiences, Patty? Because I'm just deeply interested in that, and I don't know how you were able to do what you did for so long. As you said, you were often the only women, female scientific diver in where you've been. What was it like for you? Well, I think that Actually, my father had a lot to do with it. Um, he had been in the military and he was a state policeman and he raised my brother and I more or less in a military household. And he raised me to protect myself and just to be very independent. And I was very appreciative of that. Um, I grew up in the 70s where we were marching for women's rights on campuses and you know doing all the things that you did when you were growing up and i i fought that my whole life but i never looked at it as a negative i went to school in a dominated classroom a male dominated classroom but i just chose not to think about being discriminated against. I, I knew what I wanted to do and I set out to do it and I just went about doing it. And I continued to do that my whole life. I just ignore that. When I first started diving, as I'm sure your wife did, it was the old fashioned diving where they would, you know, um, rip your mask off underwater and, you, you know, make you do all kinds of crazy things, which I always thought, well, that's the dumbest thing. That's not ever gonna happen to me in the real world. but it taught me to be a pretty tough diver. And so as you work yourself up to instructor and master instructor and course director and doing all of those, well, it slowly started to change. And back in the, I'm gonna say probably the late 80s, early 90s, the wetsuit manufacturers started putting color into their wetsuits and to the BCs because then it attracted females. They were looking to make more money and they needed to grow the diving industry. 
and the diving industry started to change their standards and their methodologies of teaching. And so it became a little more less macho throughout the years that I've been teaching. And what was very interesting when I started with Force Blue, um, there was several other instructors throughout the week that were females. I never felt, and I, I could probably ask them as well, I never felt like I was um, less than them, more than them. They never treated me different. Um, in fact, I, I think I probably interact with them more in a military style just because of the way I was raised. So um, I have, I don't have a, I just didn't let it bug me. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Yeah, there was discrimination and yeah, they tried to run me out of some things, but I just was way too stubborn for that. I wasn't going to let that happen. You sound just like Karen and I love it. I love your attitude and that's absolutely right. You should not have to take that. It just kills me that for so too long, 50% of the population has been uh, not treated fairly and given an equal chance. And people like you have broken those barriers, keep doing it and keep being an inspiration. That's just great to hear. And I, I got to ask, is your dad still alive? No, he has passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. I would love to meet him uh, as a father of daughters. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know I'm trying to, uh, my goal is to do the same, uh, raise a strong daughter or three. And uh, I think we're on the right track. Uh, that's just great. I have to say he was probably, whether he knew it or not, I don't know that he did it consciously. But it was the way he was raised, and he was military, and he was police, and he raised my brother and I with those same standards of good ethics and good morals, and go get what you want. I like, I love it. I, I embrace that, and so does Force Blue, and that's why I'm just so thrilled to be on your team, at least your board of directors. Uh, and that, that's a neat thing, you know, special forces veterans are indeed special because they've been through some real challenges and that just, that just, that levels the playing field more than anything is when you depend upon someone else for your life. Uh, and that's, that just really, and yes. So thank you, Patty. That's just really terrific. I'd like to go to Tosca because you mentioned Tosca also that you were, you were in the intelligence community and uh, supported really important national security requirements. And that especially I know to be um, historically male dominated. I'd love to know what uh, your experience has been and specifically what you're bringing to the next generation of female leadership, not just it, there in the intelligence community, but now in this ocean intelligence world that supports the American blue economy. Thank you so much for that question, Tim. And, and um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I both started my career in the intelligence community, but then moved into the tech world while still working in the intelligence community. And both um, of those worlds tend to be dominated by men. But I've been very fortunate to have both fantastic female role models, as well as men who have been my bosses and who have championed for me and sponsored me to take on leadership roles. And so I think as the next generation and looking to, you know, now I have some interns and I look to the students who are thinking about their careers now, um, it, it, it really is incredible how each generation is becoming more diverse and bringing new ideas to the table and creating and finding your community. I think no matter where you are is so important. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've frequently been the only woman in the room, uh, whether that was when I was giving an intelligence briefing or whether I was working on a software project. Um, but finding the community, even if they weren't in the room there with me, and finding the role models of how I wanted to present myself as a woman in this space was so important. And what Celeste was saying really re resonated with me. You don't want to, you know, put on this play acting role of what it means to be 
a boss or what it means to be in tech, what it means to be in the intelligence community. Um, it's important to stay true to yourself and lean into your strengths. But something I've also learned along the way is that you have to know your audience. And so what I've tried to do is, is lean into my strengths, follow my passions, um, and along the way, I've, I was able to find my voice. I know that by working hard and by um, you know supporting my team, if I could find the confidence to have my voice be heard, then I absolutely belonged there. Um, and so, yeah, if as I think about the next generation, I would really highly recommend if anyone's looking for a career with purpose where you get to build something that's really going to make a difference in the world, uh, the blue economy, climate tech, national security, these are all fields where a desire to learn, a willingness to work hard, ability to think outside the box um, are really appreciated, really valued. And you already have this generation of leaders, people like Celeste who, you know, is bringing on interns and I'm bringing on interns. And by the way, so far Ocean is hiring for anyone who's interested out there. Um, and we're here to, to help support you and help you be successful because we need, we need everyone. We need women. We need people of color. We need everyone who can contribute to this cause to be part of the mission. Gosh, what a great message, Tosca. Thank you so much for that. That's amen. That's just terrific. And you all three are fantastic role models. Thank you for inspiring others to follow in your footsteps. I'm just glad that you brought people on. Patty, you, you instruct people, you're instructing special forces veterans. And, uh, and, and Celeste and Tosca, you're bringing in interns. What a good, good message that is. Um, I'm reminded of an exchange I had today. I uh, have a separate project and I've contacted a Princeton researcher who was a Scripps Institution of Oceanography graduate like me. And uh, we had a nice exchange about our alma mater uh, and specifically Walter Monk, this famous oceanographer who we both got to meet. And she made a point to me that I had not known. And she said, one of the great things about Walter is he advised the very first female physical oceanography PhD ever at Scripps. In 1950, June Patullo graduated and with that first PhD, 1950. And I, I know from, if you go to back to the Scripps archives back in 1950, there were very few women in that field. And, uh, and how wonderful of Walter, the special man that he was, Walter Monk, it just it's typical. And I wasn't surprised to know he was the first person to bring on someone. So I encourage all our listeners, if they're at that level, uh, please be bold and bring on those that might not have that chance, it, whether they be future women wave makers or others. Uh, it's just a great message. Well, I could talk about this all day with y'all, but we have to go. We're at time. And I want to thank you all so much. Uh, any closing thoughts? And I'll begin with you, Celeste. Sure. I, my closing thought is, as a woman in this space, I'm very heartened to see how fast the world is moving. I have women, you know, applying to for jobs and internships with me now who are pursuing lines of work in environmental policy and environmental security that I didn't know existed when I was in undergrad and graduate school, and I'm in my 30s. So there's a lot of growth happening in this space, and I think hard work really, really does pay off, regardless of where you are on the gender spectrum, age spectrum. The best way to be heard is to learn your voice, like Tosca said, and to work hard and um, you know take opportunities as they come. Well said. Thank you. Celeste LaRue, founder and CEO of The Virgil Group. Uh, Tosca, anything else you want to share with us? Thank you, Tim. Um, so echoing what Celeste had to say, uh, I really do believe in leaning into your strengths, um, whether you're a woman or not, um, but especially for the women out there, lean into your strengths, find your voice, have that confidence because you do have something to bring and there is a lot to build. There's so much that we need to build and we would love to have you be part of the blue economy. Oh, perfect, perfect. Thank you, Tosca Lichtenheld government solutions lead at so far ocean and lastly patty anything else you want to share with us um yes first i want to thank you for doing such an amazing podcast 
that does focus on women. What I see over time is a great opportunity for young women that come into the science field in ocean science. The tragedy of the degradation of our oceans over this short period of time, actually, I mean, I've seen the reefs degrade to almost nothing in my lifetime, has opened up so many opportunities. And what I see here is we probably have in our internship program at CRF, probably five women to one fella that comes wow. in. It's Yeah. It's a really good space for young women right now that are interested in science and ocean science. And there's lots of opportunities to help improve our big blue economy and it because it's in trouble. And we're here, we're working in the water, we're doing our thing to improve it so that it supports our life our livelihoods. So I think it's in a good space for women. Here, here, absolutely, yes. And I hope this encourages everybody listening. Uh, thank you so much, Patty Gross, Diving Safety Officer of the Conservation Nonprofit Forest Blue. Well, again, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. You are such terrific guests, and this was such a wonderful show. I hope our listeners have a newfound appreciation for how women are making waves in the American blue economy. Be sure to listen to Tamara Khan's Wavemakers podcast on ASPN as well to learn about others. I want to thank our sponsors at ASPN and Coastal News Today. If you'd like to sponsor a future show on Coastal News Today, contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Please join us for our July episode, which will be part two in this three-part sub-series, looking at leading women wavemakers in the American blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Mm-hmm.